Hi everyone, this is Megan Berg, speech-language pathologist in Western Montana, founder of Therapy Insights, and your host of this podcast. We have a special episode for you today, one of many special episodes to come. But before I pass it on to your new hosts, Christopher, Christina, and Janan, I want to tell you the story of how this episode came into existence. We have a major problem on our hands in the fields of speech pathology, occupational therapy, and physical therapy. Because when you look at the numbers, we are made up of a very monolithic culture. And by that, I mean that the kind of person who stereotypically looks, talks, and acts like a therapist generally falls into a very narrow sliver of humanity. And yet, the patients that we serve and the problems that we're trying to solve and the innovation needed to address both of these things is as vast and broad as global humanity itself. The longer that we sustain a monoculture within our professions, the longer we delay true innovation and expansion within our fields. I think there are a lot of issues that are very unique to this time and to our generation that need to be addressed. And I don't think we can do that if we if we continue to look at every problem from the same angle. So this is why we at Therapy Insights started the Cultural Expansion Cooperative. And I had initially reached out to this group of people to help us ensure that the resources we create at Therapy Insights are not perpetuating this monolithic culture. But it quickly became clear that this fantastic team of therapists had other, bigger ideas to help all of us move the needle when it comes to exchanging our monoculture for one rich with lots of different backgrounds and perspectives. So with that, I pass it off to your hosts for this episode, Christopher. Hey, everyone. Christina. Hi. And Janine. Hey there. Who come to us from Cape Town, South Africa, Minneapolis, Minnesota, and I live in California. These hosts will be bringing you lots of conversations with therapists all over the world, helping us expand our idea of not only who is welcome within our community, but how different perspectives help all of us grow and innovate. If you like this episode, please consider leaving us a five-star review and telling a friend or colleague. Cheers. Today, we'll be talking to Mershon Play about speech, language pathology, and audiology education in South Africa, and also begin a discussion around diversity within the profession. Mershon is currently a program coordinator at Massey University in Auckland, New Zealand. Prior to that, he was an associate professor at the University of KwaZulu-Natal in South Africa, and before that, an associate professor at the University of Stellenbosch in South Africa. He is a practicing speech-language therapist and audiologist and has worked as a medical SLP with special interests in dysphagia management within the adult population and has worked in South Africa, the United Arab Emirates and also the United Kingdom. We are very happy to have Mershon talking with us today. We hope you enjoy. Good day, Chris, and thank you so much for inviting me on your um, talk. Well, um, well, we're very excited to have you here today. First of all, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, what you do, and where do you live? Sure. Uh, so um, I'm currently based in New Zealand at a university here in, in Auckland. It's Massey University. 
and I have been here for six months, but I've worked most of my life in South Africa. Um, I come from a city called Durban, um, which is based in KwaZulu-Natal, and I used to work at the University of KwaZulu-Natal. Um, I also work as, as a practitioner. In fact, I worked as a practitioner most of my life, um, and I worked between uh, South Africa, the United Arab Emirates, um, and a few other places. And I am an audiologist and a speech and language therapist, or speech and language pathologist. Awesome, great. Yeah, so we've got listeners from you know America and all over the world. So um, speech language therapists, some of them, some of them speech language pathologists. Um, okay, yes, yeah, super, super interesting. So um, tell us a little bit um, about how did you learn about your profession uh, before you know signing up and, and becoming a speech therapist. Um, so I think maybe the best way to answer that question is to say I didn't actually learn about it <laughs> and and I stumbled into it and it was all very accidental and um, so so I am the first and only member of my family to have gone to a university. Um, I'm a twin and it was basically between my twin brother and I about who was going to make it into higher education and I won the battle. <laughs> <laughs> and um, and the, the actual specific information about speech therapy, um, I, I came across through um, uh, information we found at the school I was going to, which was in a township in Durban, and uh, did a visit to the university to have a look at the program, listen to someone talk about it, looked interesting, filled in an application form, put this in a list of five things that I wanted to go for, uh, got an interview and got accepted and didn't know how special it was supposed to be uh, until I hit the class and uh, sat down on day number one and there were 19 other people in the room and we had the head of department giving us this talk about how uh, how grateful we should be for entering the university and how uh, we were part of an uh, the cream of the crop, as she put it, I remember. I remember feeling like as I needed to polish my halo at the end of it all. <laughs> And so that's how I got into it. It wasn't, I knew very little about the profession, little to none about the profession before actually entering it. Interesting, interesting. And, mm -hmm. and Merchant, when you sat down um, in your class and you were part of that 19, can you describe the people that uh, were around you? What did they look like? What did they sound like? Uh, were they okay. similar to you? So, so let me just explain context is going to be important for this, this answer. Mm. So this is in the 1980s. And um, I, I went to, at the time, the only black university in South Africa that uh, trains audiologists and speech therapists. And so that's only who could get in the program. But because there were only at the time four universities that trained uh, speech therapists and audiologists, and I think in the time that I was there, fifth one popped up, which was the University of Stellenbosch. Um, this was the, the university I went to was called the University of Durban Westville. And it um, was what was called a struggle university. So um, it had a strong political, um, historical sort of link to the to resisting uh, racist policies in South Africa. And so the kind of student body they got there, and, and specifically because it was a designated university, a race-designated university, so you had to get, uh, you, you could only come into it if you were a person of color, essentially. 
And oh, so, so that's so, so. When when I looked around the class, that's who I saw: other brown people, and um, and, and I think that that's important to take note of because that was unusual in South Africa because it was, like I said, the only university who trained people of color. <clears throat> there were other universities um, that would allow you to get into their system. So, for example. Um, at the University of Advartisrand, which was a historically white university, uh, if you had to, they had a quota system, so you could get in um, based on the number of people because they were a white liberal university, so they would allow, for example, a few people of color to enter their doors, but they still had to get um, permission from the government to go into a white university. Um, and I can tell you a lot more about that as you talk, because I think the education system uh, and what you could do if you were a person of color was very different back in the, the 1980s and even beyond before then. Wow. So, so is... yes, everybody looked, everybody looked like me. Sorry to cut you there, but, but everybody no, no, looked a little good. bit like me, which is really good in a way. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. Um, and then, and then when you, you graduated and um, you wanted to start working in the profession, tell us about um, how that looked and how that felt. Okay, so, and this is no secret, uh, but much of, much of my undergraduate um, experience was, was, was not fully positive. So I spent most of the time hating what I was doing. And, and, and I didn't know why until I left the profession, actually. Um, and uh, I failed my, my second year. I was a miserable undergraduate student. I was, I was one who would uh, literally boycott and then miss class. Um, I, uh, I, wasn't, I, I was known not to be punctual for <laughs> lectures. And, um, and in fact, I, I, by and by, I basically had a nice time my first and second year on campus. And so when I, when I graduated, I, I left with this this sort of bittersweet experience of I liked it at the end, uh, but maybe it wasn't exactly the right thing for me. So I continued to work full time at a, a restaurant. It was a pizza restaurant for about a year or so until I really needed the money to pay back the student loans. And so uh, that's so, so leaving it meant that I was leaving a what I would describe broadly as a traumatic experience. Um, and and I just I felt like I wasn't anything good at the end of it, that uh, that I was, and especially as an uh, you know because I'd failed um, it, within the degree program, I felt like as though I was a failure in more ways than one, and so I didn't actually think I was academically able. Um, and then I met this amazing person called Michael Samuel, who is in education. Um, and who became my supervisor for a master's study that I did. And I can tell you about the topic of that a bit later. Mm -hmm. um, unless we, shall I segue a little bit into the education yeah, focus? Yeah, that go, I took. go for it. Um, so, so what happened was, remember I said I, I didn't really enjoy my undergraduate experience. And a large part of that was because all of the, the stuff that we got taught, everything that we, we learned about speech therapy and audiology, um, came from North America and or Western Europe. And so I literally didn't see anything of myself mm -hmm. in those textbooks and in the journal articles and anything, everything that we, we studied. And I also just want to draw your attention to the fact that this was a historically black university in South Africa, still with little information about other and um, so, so in other words, the, 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 the textbooks that we used, even our teachers, uh, the lecturers, um, 
looked very little and acted very in dissimilar ways to our own lives. And, and so our training was very white Eurocentric. So much so, and I'm just going to jump into this for what happened a few years later. Mm. I went um, backpacking and traveling through through Europe, and I landed in, in London and lived and worked in London for a few years. But I literally got off the plane and got into a job a few days later, and it was all familiar. And I'm going to leave that thought with you for how well we were trained for, for export in South Africa. Um, and so just coming back to Michael Samuel and my master's, um, what I did for my master's was looked at um, curriculum transformation and I looked specifically at how we could uh, change our curriculum to, to work within a black African first language framework. And that was driven by my huge dissatisfaction as an undergraduate student by the fact that much of what we learned and what we did did not prepare us for the actual reality of what South Africa was about at the time. So we followed very much a colonial education system and we were best suited to serve white English or actually Afrikaans speaking populations at the time, middle-class urban-based people. And so I just knew that wasn't what I wanted to do. And that's why I went into this pizza restaurant and worked there for, for, a, for in, in a full-time position for a while. And, and like I said, until I couldn't afford to live. And so then found a job and along with that job. Uh, and incidentally, my first job was linked to speech therapy and audiology, uh, but it was an educational, uh, I, was, I was called an educational advisor. And I was looking at developing educational programs, specifically back at the University of Durban Westville to look at how we could um, improve and change the curriculum so that it became more African. And so, so, so long story short, um, unhappy undergraduate for most of the time until let's say the last year or so, um, left the degree feeling unsure, uncertain about whether I wanted to continue with it and then re-entered it, but re-entered it with a mission, uh, looking at how we could transform the curriculum. And, and basically that's been, for the last almost 30 years, that's been most of the focus of what I do is, is look at how we can shift and change our profession away from a very white Eurocentric colonial curriculum. Wow. That is absolutely awesome. I mean, that is what our podcast is, is, is all about. Um, it's about learning about the differences within our profession. And to hear from somebody who has really experienced it in pre-apartheid South Africa and gone through the journey of, of the country changing and education changing. Can you tell us a little bit more, potentially our listeners, a, a little bit more about the route to becoming a speech therapist, a qualified speech therapist now in South Africa, first of all. And then the sort of mm -hmm. secondly, I'd like to touch back on on your um, the discussion about education then and, and now. And tell me, do you think you achieved what you were hoping to achieve? How much has education changed uh, for speech therapy um, uh, students in South Africa now? So, so I'll come back. There's, there's probably about four levels to your question. I'm going to deal with the first one around curriculum and um, access. Let's just talk about access and success for, for a student if you, if you went to a university in South Africa at this mm. time. Um, so there are now seven universities in South Africa that train speech and language therapists. 
and audiologist. There are six that do speech and language therapy, um, and there are seven in total with audiology. That's seven institutions for both programs, but one does not train in audiology. Um, and as you know, being a South African graduate yourself, it's, it's a little bit different um, than, say, an American system where um, the qualifying degree is an undergraduate or four-year, some people refer to as an honors-level degree to become a speech therapist or an audiologist. And, and I say or an audiologist because up until, I think, 2000 and let me get this right, probably about 15 or 16 um, was when the last program um, to offer a, um, a degree that allowed you dual registration in South Africa, dual registration meaning joint ability to become both an audiologist and a speech and language therapist. Uh, that was when the last university to do that um, closed its program and aligned itself to the national program, which then um, was offered at all universities where you could only become one or the other. And that, of course, um, took a lot of, just personally having gone through a degree that targeted um, knowledge and uh, clinical skill in both audiology and speech and language pathology was stressful. So we, uh, and just I'm harking back a little bit to what I spoke about earlier on. So I started off with actually uh, 19 other people in the class, 10 of whom I finished with. And, and 10 people, we graduated, half the class made it to, to the, the, the finishing line, of whom most of the people I graduated with did not start with me also. So they, they were a mixed bunch of people. And, um, it's, and so I'm speaking about that experience from my personal experience because um, the attrition rate nationally in South Africa is very high. Um, so most people who enter the, the degree program, and this has been going for a long time, as you can tell this is since, for example, the 80s, where uh, there's many students who enter and don't succeed. Um, they either leave the degree or um, it takes them a longer time to finish it than the stipulated four years. So that's that's a general trend. And I can't be exact with figures, et cetera, so I'm not going to um, embellish that with any inf specific information other than to say it's not an easy degree to get through. Um, and then, um, so, but it, it, as of 1994, when the new South African government came into being, uh, a lot of changes occurred post-1994 with regards to higher education institutions, policies for access. So, for example, at the University of Durban-Westville, we went through this whole transformation of re-looking really at how do you um, work within a country where, for example, the minimum criteria for entry into speech and language therapy and audiology, uh, as it is um, and as it was for occupational therapy and physiotherapy as well, in fact, all of the um, health sciences is, is what we broadly refer to it as, um, required for you to have maths, mathematics and or science subjects, so biology and physical science. Uh, in addition to, of course, the language entry criteria, which was English um, at the university I was at and in two other universities, or at least one other university, that's Stellenbosch, Afrikaans was the medium of instruction. And so the, the difficulty was about entering um, based, uh, using those criteria in a country where that really only privileged white uh, English Afrikaans speaking South Africans. So up until 2020, you'll notice that the profession is still even, so and this is why I say 2020, of course, it still goes on. It's a profession in South Africa remains to be predominantly white, female, uh, possibly heteronormative, 
very middle class, very urban based English or Afrikaans speaking people, women predominantly. And so you've got to stand back and look at that information or that demographic profile and think about how is that possible? How is that possible in a black African country that you have a profession like audiology and speech and language pathology that is an inverse repli- image of the population? Uh, and that that's the question that I think that has plagued me for a long time since entering this profession, is what are the forces that keep the profession looking the way it does that keep the profession replicating or reproducing after its own image and and so that's and that's that's true of almost all of the the programs in south africa having said that there are two programs that are um, that have been new in the country there's the university of fort hay and safaho mahato university both of which are historically black institutions, meaning that because of their location and program intent, etc., most of their students will be black South Africans. And so this has made a difference uh, in a sense to um, producing more uh, black African graduates in the country, but still not enough to, to look, if you look at the current profile, which is still predominantly, like I said just now, uh, white um, and, and mainly female. So there's a few things around race, gender, class, um, the whole shebang around looking at how the profession works within its own identity parameters, the way it sees itself to make more of itself through education, higher education as a mechanism to do this. So, so that, that's, that's part of how I, uh, I think about the profession and how the universities have played a significant role in maintaining the status quo over the profession's lifetime. Incidentally, the profession um, in South Africa has been around a, a relatively long time. It's not as old as, say, physiotherapy in South Africa, um, but physiotherapy is just over 100 years old. But speech therapy officially uh, began in 1936, 1937, uh, depending on which point of reference you use for which degree or, or de- it began as a diploma and then moved into a degree program. But, you know, that's not a, a small amount of time. And in fact, even globally, that's, you know, that's relatively lo- a relatively long period to be um, focusing on, on developing a profession. And, and, and for me, probably still not succeeding in doing what it should do in terms of the country's requirements. Thank you, Marshan. Very interesting. I know one of um, uh, the, one of our, how can I say, one of our goals as part of the cultural um, expansion cooperative is we are putting together um, packs um, and training materials and courses for university and also for for colleges potentially in America to to encourage a different type of person into the profession because um, I believe in America what we're experiencing as well is the the similar type of uptake and this sort of monolithic experience of what does a speech therapist occupational therapist or physiotherapists look like how do they think and exactly as you were saying even though in south africa where we're predominantly uh, uh, black we're still producing the same product from the university so i'm just trying to think outside of the box like how do we bring about change 
One of the things for me is being to make a noise about the need to change, first of all. So since starting, my very first research project was in 1992, and I did a study looking at um, indigenous um, healthcare. So I looked at Isizulu traditional healers um, who are referred colloquially and um, ignorantly as witch doctors. And um, I spent about a year in a beautiful place called the Valley of a Thousand Hills in KwaZulu-Natal. And, and basically just, just hung around with, with Nyangas, as they're called, and um, essentially looked at the values and belief systems that Isizulu people use um, and cross-reference when. And my question was, to them was what happens if you were if you were presented with a person had a speech or hearing or swallowing disorder what would you do and of course it was exactly the wrong question to ask and so i learned through that kind of research study was that i was imposing a western imperial framework on trying to understand in an indigenous knowledge system and so as a result of that it, it sort of shot me into making, a, like I said, a loud noise around the way in which our education didn't meet the, 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 the values and beliefs of people in our country. And Isazula speakers are predominantly, they're about 80% in South Africa. So, so first of all is, is knowing what's wrong with what we do. And that's a very personal journey. And, um, and then standing on your soapbox and just using every single platform that you could find. So myself and my colleague from the University of Cape Town, who she's currently there, Hasha Cathad and I, took it on as a mission. And so we found conferences to that would um, accept our abstracts, because often our abstracts were rejected from mainstream audiology and speech therapy conferences. And we learned from um, education, from other healthcare professions, from um, social sciences, uh, methodologies, etc., and interconnected with them to 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 speak, just to speak out against it. So I think resistance is important. So in in the profession, it's important not to, if you see something wrong, walk by it like as though you would walk by an accident and just pretend it didn't happen. Uh, the idea is to stop and say or do something about it. And so I think that's that's the first thing that perhaps when you're looking at changing a profession is firstly to know what is it that you're going to be going on about. And that, that's really, like I said, a very personal uh, reflection on your own value systems. And then if you feel that there is a bigger political mission to look at transformation and the, the who for what for sort of argument, then then that's perhaps a way to engage it is, is to connect with, for example, in the last few years in, in America, the hashtag BLM, Black Lives Matter, and hashtag Me Too movements, for example, have focused strongly on race and gender uh, and, and people connecting with that. And so uh, perhaps, and within the profession, there's been a huge response across the Americas, even in um, Europe and, and in other parts of the world that have interconnected those movements with the hashtag roads must fall or the hashtag uh, the must the, what's referred to broadly as the fallist movements. So finding your voice through a particular political stream um, needs to occur within the profession. So it's for too long that 
speech therapy and audiology as a profession has depoliticized itself. And so it's really refreshing. It's, it's really good to see that in the last at least decade, there's been a stronger assertion of voice and of a political identity within the profession. So people are claiming all, um, their voices through being uh, an identity, for example, like a color, um, a gender, um, being, uh, for example, gay or lesbian or trans or um, a variety of other social and um, identities, essentially. And for me, that's critical. So in summary, when you ask how can we change this thing that we're doing, it's first know yourself and then know what you're fighting and articulate that and use every opportunity you can to to engage that. Okay, awesome. I think you've started to touch on, on this uh, next question um, in your last answer, and that is, in your own words, what do you think diversity and inclusion looks like? So, first off, I'm particularly, and, and please forgive me for saying this, I'm not entranced by the way in which diversity um, and inclusivity and um, you know those, those words have been hijacked by mainstream mm -hmm. uh, professions and by people who need to do their thing to score points uh, brown tick or black ticking boxes as as one may put it uh, so so first of all that's those concepts have become yet another commercialized framework to be used to seen to be doing the right thing and so I think, first of all, I'm not, I don't subscribe to, to those, uh, those concepts in the way it's being developed within, um, within the modern sort of neoliberal framework. Uh, but having said that, I'm going to step off my soapbox <laughs> and, and say that I think uh, for me, if, I had to, if you had to ask me, well, what's diversity? Uh, I'd go with the, strongly with the intersectional perspective on diversity. So it's absolutely certain. I, I, I'm not only a color, I'm a gender. I, as a gay man, I have a particular way of looking at the world. Come from a working class background, I can't forget that. Uh, so there's a whole range of, uh, you know, various factors that, um, that I think about when I think about diversity. Um, I, I am fully aware, though, that when people speak about diversity, the question or the reason they need to ask it is because of who they are rather than who they're asking it to. And so as a white man in South Africa, Chris, you would have uh, understood the notion of race and of class, etc., and gender differently because of your, your own particular histories, for example. So, so I'm going to do a really strange thing in this interview and bounce that question right back at you as interviewer. <laughs> okay. And say, did you think in your experience, even though you represent in South Africa the heart of darkness, a white man, okay, were you any different? How's diversity go with you? <laughs> Um, <laughs> didn't expect this one did you but no, i'm gonna ask no, it Let's it's all good i mean we are um, <laughs> planning to to interview all of us um individually anyway but absolutely motion um you know mm -hmm. signing up to the cultural expansion cooperative i uh, i saw the original email and the advert and i uh, something something sparked my interest um about the way that the the advert was written and and I thought I'm I'm really interested in in being a voice. I'm really interested in being on a panel that discusses diversity, discusses um, equity, 
um, and equality. But then I sat there thinking, no, I can't because I'm a, I'm a white man. You know, I, I'm, I'm a privileged person from a privileged upbringing. And um, in previous podcasts, I've, I've discussed this as well. You know, I definitely feel the, I don't know, in, in inverted brackets, the, the burden of, of my privilege. And a, and a lot of times I, um, I, I, I sit there and I question and I wonder, you know, how, how can I ask these questions? How can I be here? But I think it kind of also goes back to your previous answer where I was talking about change, and that is just about being aware and taking a stand. And so, so for me, um, as a, a white person and a privileged person, yes, it's difficult for me to answer that question. But throughout my life, I've had my own experiences as a, as a, 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 a gay man and as a father uh, to a little girl uh, via surrogacy. Um, our listeners may know that from, from previous podcasts. I've experienced uh, discrimination uh, through, through mm -hmm. my life. So I've been marginalized or my group has been marginalized. So that's kind of how I come into this whole diversity panel through that. Um, and added to that as well, when I, when I went to university, um, which was um, also, I think we were 30 people in our class, I was mm -hmm. the only male, and I was the only male within the entire uh, program um, of four years, and uh, I was also the oldest by, by far. So that's kind of mm -hmm. the angle that I come from. I didn't look mm -hmm. like my peers. I didn't sound like my peers, and I didn't act like my peers. So, because of mm -hmm. that, I feel like I've I've, I've come into um, the profession with a, a different um, a different set of glasses, a different worldview. Mm -hmm. So, so yeah, that's kind of where I I, I bring um, come into it, and and how I see diversity. And it's for me about mm -hmm. connecting with with our patients, connecting with our, our colleagues and, and, and showing that we are not the same. We are different, mm -hmm. but we are stronger because we're different. But we need to connect with the, those differences and we need to be aware of those differences and also be aware of uh, places of privilege and how we need to potentially adjust um, our materials, our resources, our assessments, to to better get the the best from um, our therapies and our assessments, I suppose. So I like the focus you you making on the impact on the people we work with because um, because that's ultimately what it's about. But there's a particular angle that you take. So when you when you were speaking, for me that's really interesting because a lot of what you said, I. I totally get. So I fully identify with the experience of once you enter the university system you and you close the door behind you, you leave you outside that, that door and you become whatever the program wants you to become. So you end up sitting on the floor playing with Barbie and Ken and blowing bubbles and, and looking like the speech therapist or the audiologist that they want you to look like. Mm. And so, of course, your identity is compromised when you enter as a, a minority as a, in, in, the, in a profession like speech therapy. 
Um, so, so I just wanted to draw your attention to, of course, there's synergies between what you, your experiences were and mine, even though you are white and male and uh, possibly uh, different in terms of those two key um, aspects of your social identities. But, but what's more important for me is the notion of being aware, as you say, of your privilege and knowing how you've entered this dialogue not just this dialogue between you and I, but the dialogue that you will have between yourself and your clients and yourself and your peers and the profession and, you know, the whole shebang is knowing that that you actually have privilege and being able to understand what that privilege comes with and how to deal with privilege. Because, and there's a couple of things that I think that's important here is um, I work very much within a decoloniality framework in, in the profession and looking at how we can decolonize our education, our practices, etc. But I, I do, I get disturbed by allyship and I get disturbed by people who go, I'm all with you, my brother. Let's sit down together because I'm here on this journey with you. And the reason that it disturbs me is because um, oftentimes the people who reach out to help you are the very people that you are working against ideologically. And so what I think is needs to happen when we talk about shifting toward a more diverse and a more inclusive world is the, is the recognition that um, there's definitely been a clear line between the haves and the have-nots and between the privileged perspectives in the world of what, what it means to be a person in the world. And... And so a necessary step is, like you said, recognizing that privilege. And it's something that I would distinguish between decoloniality. And I refer to that, and this is not my own term, but it's Sabelo and Lovu Gacheni's term, if you need to know the reference for this, but it's it's called a de-imperialization. And essentially understanding your own power as an imperial force in that relationship, in your clinical space, uh, in whatever space you occupy as a as a therapist, as a researcher, as an educator in your profession, and knowing knowing your own power and then knowing how you use it. And I think that's important because most people have um, skipped past that analysis of their own power and jumped into the well to help the the person that they see whom they see is over on the other side, the marginalized, the minority, the other person. And I think that that, that that's that's a very important step to take if you recognize privilege that you need to actually first engage. That's equally painful and equally hard to do. It's to recognize your privilege and, and how you use it uh, because how you use that has impacted on the way the profession has developed. And so I think uh, that, that's a very important step uh, in looking at um, the creation of a more equitable world is, and I prefer equity versus equality because um, equity is obviously a more realistic option, just given the, the fact that the world will never be equal in terms of power across any of these dynamics that we're talking about. But it's recognizing that that there will be unequal power relationships, and and that's that means then having to deal with this inequality, um, and and how we as a profession respond to clinical research or higher education transformations. So yeah, so that's that's basically what what I have to say there in a nutshell. Oh, that's awesome. I mean, um, I knew inviting you onto this podcast would be interesting, and um, it's certainly been that, and and enlightening, and just getting a total 
for me um, so many more levels of of knowledge and you're piquing my interest and I know I need to to research more I need I know I need to learn more and um, and I just want to thank you so much for uh, for giving us your time today and for coming onto the podcast we really really uh, appreciate it it's been a pleasure chatting to you and I think it's it's lovely that you're doing this Chris so thank you very much for starting this conversation and I hope it's been useful it definitely has it definitely has and thank you very much Okay, welcome back, everybody. Um, this is the uh, roundtable discussion for uh, Mershon's uh, interview. Uh, my name is Christopher Rourke, speech-language pathologist uh, based in Cape Town, South Africa. And um, I'll let my the name ladies is introduce Christina themselves. Doyle. I'm a speech-language pathologist, and I'm based in Minneapolis, Minnesota. And I'm Janan Moss. I'm a speech-language pathologist in California. Really excited to discuss this interview. It was wonderful. Great, great stuff. Nice to have you both. Um, well, nice to have us all three again uh, back on the panel. And for me, as the the interviewer, it it was it was it was eye opening. Um, and then you know, as the interview sort of just progressed into this whole um, interesting talk about. The discussion about education in South Africa and moving away from this exactly what we're doing in the in the cooperative expansion, moving away from this monolithic thought process, it, it was mind-blowingly interesting. And I kind of left the interview with my head a buzz with all these new thought processes and things that I had to go and study and, and learn. What, I mean, what did you, Jen, Janan, you, you were saying um, that it was super interesting. Yeah. Tell me, what, what was it that really uh, was yeah, good for you? Yeah, Christopher, I really think you hit the nail on the head with going into listening to him is I felt like, wow, there's so much more I need to know about. There's so much more I need to explore. Um, and as someone who is in the United States, but of a minority, it's also different hearing this perspective of someone from South Africa um, and knowing that maybe the struggle is not so different <laughs> on the other side of the pond, um, but also just knowing his background, how he got into speech pathology and how he he himself said he just stumbled into it. Um, I thought that, I mean, we hear a lot of people saying they stumble into it, but just how it seems like this was his calling to come into it and really bring the change that the profession needed at the time in South Africa. Um, and it's something that, you know, unfortunately we were, we would have hoped looking back at history would have gotten a lot better between now and then, but it maybe hasn't gotten as better as we would have liked it to be as maybe as fast as we would have liked it to be. That's what I really took away from it is that this is definitely an ongoing discussion. This is something that's still the racism, talking about minorities, talking about all of these different areas is something we still need to work on. 
Yeah, and going off of Jen and what you said too, I think I, for the majority of the time that I was listening, I was writing down a lot of the quotes of what he was saying because I felt like he had so many great quotes in the whole podcast where I was like, this Definitely. is something that I could even, yeah, think about. Like, I think yeah. one of the biggest ones that I that I came across was um, that he, at the end of his graduate or even during his undergraduate experience where at the end he felt really bitter about the field and he felt really bitter about himself. And that was something that was very reflective in my own journey as well academically. But then he said, you know, part of it was the reason that that I didn't feel a part of the, or part of the reason I didn't feel like I was represented was because he didn't see anything of himself. And I felt like that was just a big quote from that. Like he didn't see, you know, minority, like how, how the minority, um, population is impacted by our our care and how our curriculum is so white focused and how it should be the opposite because we're caring for people that don't look like us the majority of the time or aren't reflected mm-hmm. in in our you know respective fields so I felt like that was something that really reflected with me during the during the while I was listening to the actual you know podcast and interview um, and and just his sort of throwing back the question on me about what is diversity to me, what is inclusion to me, or what is inclusivity. It, um, yeah, it for me was still it's still going around my my mind. It's still I'm still finding my feet. But what I wanted to communicate with with all the listeners today is that you know if you're sitting in a, a position similar to myself where you have had privilege, where you you are um, that sort of monolithic look and feel and you're feeling uncomfortable right now that's kind of good that's where you should be you should be there should be this shift and this change at a at your core at your center and that's why I I asked him like what do I do what do we do what do our listeners do to make these changes right and to make them lasting right that's that's also because right now there's this whole big movement and everybody's excited about it and what are we going to do but what's going to happen next week what's going to happen in six months time and what's going to happen next year is there going to be something else and have you are you going to have forgotten about that or has your whole being and self and way of working and way of looking at your your caseload has that actually changed and so that's my process that's what i want to do I want to. I want to make these small but meaningful yeah. changes. It's not just a trend. It's not just oh, this is this is nice. Okay, yes, this week I will focus on blah blah blah. No, and 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 I see that Christopher, and even you know, growth doesn't happen without discomfort, right? We have this small circle around us of comfort, and once that circle stretches a little bit more, oh, it's a little scary, and but then you get comfortable again, and the circle gets wider and wider, and we all need to have that, right? And um, I think he, even for me, listening to it, knowing that, you know, he's He's just the way he he presented it was maybe in a way I hadn't entirely seen it in that way before, right? Um, and then so he I know he mentioned intersectionality a few times with thinking about that's how 
like really empowering intersectionality within our field and our curriculum. And it's like, I think about it a lot. Where does it start? Well, it starts in our curriculum first. And he's mm-hmm. doing the work, really. He's mm-hmm. doing the work, which is awesome to see that there's somebody outside of the United States too doing the work. Because I think we we focus on a lot of the professors inside the United States, you know, that are that are focusing on starting this work and he's already doing it. And that's awesome to see. Um, And I wish that he could be at a program here. I think that would be super helpful for our students to know. And I hope that these changes, you know, and also I think about it a lot, like it's the curriculum level, but it's also the association level. You know, um, we've talked a lot about, and, and that's the hot topic of conversation, the American Speech Hearing Association, and like, how, what are they doing too, to ensure that we are bringing in people of color and people from different walks of life into our programs? Yeah, and, and that's, you bring up the great point, Christina, of the starting at the curriculum. And of course, even admissions, if we take it even a step back, right? Who are we admitting? Who are we recruiting into these different therapy programs? Um, I don't have the statistics off the top of my head, but my understanding is um, for us as speech pathologists, we're pretty familiar with you know the, the demographics, right? In the US, it's approximately 92% white women, correct me if I'm wrong, but somewhere around there. And um, as, and about like three, four percent male. Yeah, no, we're also very similar in South Africa. We've we don't have as many universities as you do. Never mind um, the amount of the universities that actually run speech and uh, speech language uh, therapy um, courses. Anyway, and yeah, to 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 get in is really difficult. And the roadblocks that you're talking about are um, yeah just the same in South Africa and you 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 are attracting a certain type of yeah. student and the type of student that you get in looks the same sounds the same and um yeah it, it can only look after 10 percent of the population that is the long and yeah, short of it again it's not sustainable <laughs> that's not uh in a way it feels like that's it's unethical you know that I, you're recruiting, yeah, like you saying, you're recruiting for a certain type of person. And I, I did not, like full disclosure, no secret here, did not get into graduate school the first round. I had to apply the second time, right? And I was told by my professors, oh, why are you even applying to so many schools? You're gonna get, it's fine, you're gonna get in. And right, and you know, maybe I wasn't the perfect 4.0 applicant, and that's the truth, but I also saw the people who did get into the graduate program and they were the people who were on the student committee, the student speech therapy association. Um, They all looked the same and sounded the same and probably had very similar things. And I didn't have that. I was instead the president of the Muslim student association. I wasn't a part of the speech therapy student association. I mean, I was a member, but I wasn't on the board, right? I had leadership things that they had, um, but I guess maybe it wasn't what, I don't know, what what they were looking for. Um, no, it was the same with me too. I 
it was the second time around and I was focused on the marching band. I was in my university's marching band and like that was what I really loved to do at the time. And it helped so much with my mental health and being able to structure my days. And then by the time I found out about the whole, you know, being on the NISLA student committee or being on, you know, doing a, a lab, you know, some sort of lab work with a professor, like, it was, I remember it. one of my it's friends told me, like, oh, I finished my thesis. Yeah. yeah, I literally, I found out, I think I remember I was sitting in class with one of my friends that found out she got into the graduate program. And it was like two weeks before I was going to graduate that I found out that I should have done all these things. And I remember like going home and crying mm-hmm. and being like, I should have done all of this work. Like I'm a failure. I'm terrible. And it wasn't until the second time around. And I'm like, I'm so grateful though, that I got that year off to do other work in my community, in my populations I wanted to work with. So it was really helpful in the long run. And I'm really happy that I was able to take that time off. So, But I I agree. And I think um, the articles that uh, Mershon wrote, I think, are a good basis to, you know, thinking about these types of things. And now... That's something I'm very passionate about is trying, I want to get into academia and teach and start do some of these changes that I mean, potentially that Mershon's talking about or in other related changes. But we, we as a, as the body of these, of rehab, right? You know, we're not in these organized, the organizations of ASHA, APTA, AOTA and equivalents of, around the world. But we need to speak up. You know, we're the people paying the dues for these places. <laughs> and we're the people that, you know, we need to to talk about how this is something that needs to be improved. So I think um, that's that's coming to, to the, the end of our roundtable now. Um, for me, I felt as though the interview with Mershon was definitely almost like a, yeah. a part one. By the time we were kind of finishing up, I thought to myself, there's so many other questions. We haven't really talked about his his working as a dysphagia specialist or um, you know, he's, he, he just mentioned a little bit about working in, I think, the UK and also oh, yeah. in yeah. Um, the Arab Emirates and... So potentially, you know, we can we can call it to be advised on this. And um, as we're going along our journey uh, of different podcasts, we can maybe revisit yeah. him and um, and reconnect with him. Um, what we will do is we'll get those articles um, somehow onto the podcast. There'll be a link that you can click into. You can read a little bit more about them um, because for me, they they have been very, very interesting Um and enlightening and also just yeah highlighting my privilege and what we need to do to to start making a change but thank you for both being here and um thank you for for the round table and uh the discussion it's it's super to hear your voices again oh thank you for introducing Mershon to us i agree this is scratching the surface with this fella and i love him he's wonderful yeah. <laughs> We'd love to sit and have coffee with him someday. <laughs> Good. If yeah. I'm ever in New Zealand. <laughs> <laughs> Good. Definitely. All right. Thank you. All right, guys. Thanks. Bye. Bye, everybody. Bye.
Hi everyone, this is Megan again. I just wanted to jump in with some statistics to clarify those since they were mentioned during the roundtable discussion. These statistics come from the ASHA 2020 member and affiliate profile, the APTA physical therapy workforce analysis completed in 2020, and the AOTA 2019 workforce and salary survey. So within the field of speech language pathology, 4.5% of SLPs identify as men, 3.6% of SLPs identify as black or African American, 6.1% of SLPs identify as Latine, 0.3% of SLPs identify as American Indian or Alaska Native, 3.1% of SLPs identify as Asian, and all of these numbers are well below the representation population of the United States. Within the field of physical therapy, 2.5% of PTs identify as Black or African American, 3.5% of PTs identify as Latine, 0.4% of PTs identify as American Indian or Alaska Native. And within occupational therapy, 2.6% of OTs identify as Black or African American, 3.6% identify as Latine, 0.2% of OTs identify as American Indian or Alaska Native. <clears throat> and for some perspective, the U.S. population is 13.4% Black, 18% Latine, and 1.6% American Indian or Alaska Native. Thank you guys for joining us for this conversation. Be sure to tune in for the next discussion from the Cultural Expansion Cooperative. They've got a lot of really great conversations lined up. And we'll continue to reach out to people around the world to bring different voices to the center of our professions. Thank you all. See you next time.